COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. Hello, everybody, and thanks for tuning in to Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and today we are doing a little twist on Colorado true crime. But first off, thank you so much for being here. I love my returning listeners so much, and if this is your first time listening to Altitude Crime, welcome to the crime clan. There's no need to wait until the end of the episode, so go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment with your thoughts on this episode or suggest a crime. I'd love to hear your guys' suggestions. You can always visit the website altitudecrime.com for source materials and other cool stuff. This week, we are doing something a little different and revisiting a topic from one of our past episodes. Today, we are going to talk about the stretch of Colorado that has become known as Prison Valley, as well as the infamous cast of characters that have been or are being housed there. Prisons may not be something that comes to mind when you think of Colorado, but there are 20 state and four federal prison facilities in the state. Fremont County, which you can drive across in about two hours, is home to nine state correctional facilities and two federal institutions. These include FCI Florence, United States Administrative Maximum Penitentiary, otherwise known as ADX, Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility, Colorado State Penitentiary, Colorado Women's Correctional Facility, Fremont Correctional Facility, 
Centennial Correction Facility, and the East Canyon Correctional Complex, which is made up of Skyline Correctional Center, Four Mile Correctional Center, Pre-Release Center, and Arrowhead Correctional Center. Whew! You can see why this small stretch of prairie is called Prison Valley. According to Fremont County's website, over half the jobs in Fremont County are supplied by the correctional institutions in the area. Today, we are going to take a look at the most famous of these institutions, the oldest and still operating Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility and the United States Administrative Maximum Penitentiary, otherwise known as ADX. So first, we are going to talk about the OG prison of Colorado, the original, the one and only Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility. The history of the prison would begin on January 7th, 1868. Colorado society, which was still very much a part of the Wild West then, was in need of more protection from the lawless and needed the ability to put lawbreakers behind bars. According to the short history written by Gerald E. Sherard, it was Thomas Macon, a recent addition to the territorial legislature, that would fight to have Canyon City be the location of the facility. Macon already had gained favor with those in power in the territory. Just before proposing the prison location, he had fought to have Denver named the state capital instead of the originally intended Golden. The beginnings of the prison were humble. An early settler of Fremont County named Jonathan Draper donated the 25-acre piece of land the prison would sit on. According to Sherard, quote, The first building was constructed of native stone which was quarried on the site, unquote. You can see why this prison area is so different than most. There's a lot of care taken to preserve the history there, and locals really see the importance of the heritage of what they have created. The prison would take its first inmate on January 13, 1871. At this time, the prison would be known as the Colorado Territorial Prison, as Colorado would not become a state until 1976, still five years away. It has now become more affectionately called Old Max. The first inmate was a 24-year-old man named John Shepler, who was convicted of larceny and would serve one year. The first female inmate would arrive on March 12, 1873. Her name was Mary Salandon. Salandon was serving three years for being charged with manslaughter. By 1872, the new prison was already home to prisoners from six different counties and with sentences ranging from 18 months to life in prison. But the new prison would not come without downfalls. The first escape from the facility took place in December 1871, when the prisoner literally just walked away. It wasn't until four years later, in 1875, that a wall would finally be built around the perimeter of the prison to keep inmates in and wandering neighborhood hogs out. What would turn out to be a successful effort to create a prison library started in 1873, just two years after opening its doors to Colorado's criminals. 
1877, after receiving statehood, the Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility would become the Colorado State Penitentiary. This new government base also gave them the funds needed to enlarge the facility and fix some of the kinks that had come with starting a new prison. There had been multiple outcries by the surrounding citizens due to escapes and overall quality of inmates' lives. Statehood and funding would prove to give the facility more solid footing within its community. By 1900, there were 444 cells for men and an additional building for women prisoners. Just a few years later, the prison started to overcrowd again, and in 1904, a new cell house was built. In the next couple years, the inmates would be put to work building a bakery and a hospital. The hospital included what was, at the time, a state-of-the-art insane asylum. According to Brooke Johnson's reporting for the Canyon City Daily Record, quote, In 1910, construction on the administration building was finished, complete with a balcony for the prison band to perform on. Weekly band concerts were conducted and citizens would listen at the park adjacent to the prison grounds. People from across Colorado would come to hear the band play, visit the beautiful orchards, and get a drink from the Soda Springs, unquote. The prison found a lot of ways to bring in revenue. According to Sherard, work programs for inmates included carpentry, blacksmithing, shoe and clothing repair, brick manufacturing, and repairs to the prison buildings. The most lucrative activities were quarrying from the hill behind the facility, as well as farm and garden work. The prison even contracted out with companies that needed labor. The companies would supply instructions and materials, while the inmates would complete the work from behind bars. In 1900, the inmates would be sanctioned to build roads throughout the area. One of the first completed was the road leading to the top of the Royal Gorge. In 1908, the program would escalate to the creation of mobile prison tent camps that would move along the highways as they were completed by the Men in Stripes. The road work would halt during World War I, but would be replaced with other tasks like the manufacturing of license plates and metal highway and road markers by inmates. In 1929, a canning program was put into place along with 90 acres of fruit trees and other food-bearing plants. These canned foods provided a huge amount of the inmates' diets, and the remaining amounts were sold to markets through the state for profit. Ranches were eventually purchased in order to expand this venture into livestock. In 1934, knitting machines were installed in the prison. Shortly after, all clothing inmates wore every day was made at the prison itself. Civilian clothing was also made and sold outside of the facility. At the time, Sherard explained that the Colorado State Penitentiary was supplying the following to all state institutions, quote, soaps of all kind, scouring powder, cold cream, vanishing cream, skin softener, lotion, shampoo, furniture polish, sweeping compound, bluing, ink, and flavorings, unquote. Most of these endeavors, and more, would continue to operate in the coming decades. Rehabilitation at the early stages of the prison was unheard of. The view we see in movies of early prisoners in which they have little humane treatment or opportunities exists for a reason. It wasn't far from the truth. 
1897, laws changed and said that every able-bodied prisoner should be given some type of work to do that fit within their capabilities. Prisoners even began to earn money doing these tasks. The money they earned were either sent to an inmate's family or dependents, or if they didn't have any next of kin, it was given to them directly. Warden Thomas J. Tinnen would make a big change in prison life in 1911. It was typical in the past for new prisoners to wear uniforms with black and white stripes for their first 90 days in prison. Sounds like your probation period at work, right? I'm just kidding. Your job isn't that bad. Tenen instead give new inmates blue uniforms and referred to them as convicts of the first class. As long as they followed along with prison rules and behaved themselves, they wouldn't have to wear the striped uniforms. The striped uniforms served as more of a punishment instead of a type of branding. And you have to think this clothing totally pointed them out to veteran inmates. So it really had to have made them a target. And doing this maybe kind of helped change some prison dynamics between the residents there. Tenen was also eager to institute work programs and encouraged recreation in the form of team sports. But all wasn't fine and dandy at the prison. Executions did occur, and they took place right inside the prison doors. Hanging was used up until 1933 in Colorado as the method of execution. According to Sherrard's writing, quote, Colorado was one of the first Western prisons to utilize a lethal gas chamber in the execution of prisoners, and many other states modeled similar installments after the one in Canyon City, unquote. The gas chamber would be used for the last time, to execute a prisoner in 1967. In 1979, the prison's name would change again to Colorado Territorial Correctional Facility, but the nickname Old Max has continued to stick. In 1993, a second prison opened in Canyon City and took the name Colorado State Penitentiary. For a prison of its time, Old Max started doing things for prisoners early on that were unheard of for years. A quote from the 1874 excerpt from a council journal taken during conversations about the prison at an assembly of the Territory of Colorado says it all, quote, The advance of civilization and teachings of humanity are fast introducing into the prison of enlightened nations. A discipline looking to the reform of a prisoner and his ultimate restoration to society as a penitent and better man. Whatever features you may be able to introduce into your prison discipline, looking to the reformation of criminals, will be in harmony with the advanced spirit of the age and run parallel with the best interests of society and the state, unquote. I find this just so cool because, again, this quote is from 1874. Colorado still wasn't a state. It was still very much the Wild West. And it's so awesome to think that people in my state were already thinking about this and they were already wanting to try to enhance prisoners' lives to make them be able to be restored into society and be able to live out better lives for everyone. They were encouraging that ability to give somebody a second chance and somebody a second chance to be a part of society and in a productive way. As a fun fact, what happens when you leave Old Max? As of 1995, the personnel gave you everything you needed to start your new life. $100, a new set of clothes, and a bus ticket out of Canyon City. 
Perhaps Old Max's most famous inmate is a person that has become a sort of lore for Colorado natives. This is the story of Alfred Packer. A man of his time, Packer took to the mountains of Colorado with gold fever. In 1874, he and five other men had been warned not to enter the mountains until spring, but did not heed the warning. What would conspire from this decision would be written in Colorado history forever. In the harsh Colorado winter, the men were trapped in the hills by snow and quickly ran out of supplies. As a last effort, the men even boiled their hide moccasins as a source of sustenance. According to the story told by Packer, one of the men he traveled with had attacked him with a hatchet. Packer fought back and killed the man. After the struggle, Packer said that he found the bodies of all the other men they had been traveling with. They were all dead, and one had even had the flesh ripped off his body. A starving Packer was forced to consume the flesh of his already dead companions. Upon making his way back to civilization in the spring, no one believed his story of forced cannibalism. Instead, he was tried and sentenced to jail for the death of all of the men. He escaped his original prison and was resentenced and jailed in Old Max. He served 15 of his 40-year sentence and was released on parole. Packer lived the rest of his life in Denver and died in 1907. After his death, a judge tried to have him posthumously pardoned, but Packer's cannibalistic legacy was already too ingrained in Colorado urban legend, and the pardon was denied. Old Max was also home to the youngest murderer in Colorado. On March 24, 1893, 11-year-old Anton Wood was convicted of murder. On April 8, 1893, he would enter Old Max, where he would serve 25 years. Wood was convicted of shooting Joseph Smith, a Denver businessman. Wood was on a rabbit hunting trip with Smith when the man was shot in the back. Joseph's body was robbed of a watch and his shotgun after his death. Anton would have served his sentence in Buena Vista Prison, which was a reform school for boys. He was considered too dangerous for the location and was instead taken to Old Max, where he would serve his term among adult men. At the age of 18, Anton would be involved in an attempted prison break with three other inmates, Thomas Reynolds, Kid Wallace, and C.E. Wagner. The four had been working at the prison boiler house late into the night on January 22, 1900. After about 10 p.m. that night, the group killed Captain William C. Rooney. They then disabled and tied up two guards and broke the boiler so that the lights in the whole prison would go out. They took off over one of the walls of the prison and on their way to freedom. Conspirator Thomas Reynolds was caught in Florence the next day. Reynolds would not make it back to jail safely, though. He was snatched by an angry mob of citizens from the horse-drawn buggy taking him back to Old Max. He was lynched on a brand new Colorado Electric Company light pole just across the highway from the prison. Kid Wallace and Anton would be found three days later near Victor, just over an hour away from Canyon City. They surrendered to the authorities. At the time, C.E. Wagner was still at large. With a statement from Anton, Kid Wallace was put on trial for the murder of Captain Rooney. He was found guilty and sentenced to another 25 years behind bars. 
Anton Wood, on the other hand, would not be dealt any more charges. He claimed that he had been forced to take part in the escape, and people believed him. Wood shaped up, and outside of a few minor infractions, like not getting up in time for roll call, he was a model inmate. In 1903, he even had a chance to stage another escape, but instead alarmed guards to the situation. Anton continued to shape himself in prison. In Tracy Harmon's reporting for the Pueblo Chieftain, it was noted that Wood learned the arts, became a musician, violin was his preferred instrument, and learned to speak both French and German. Anton Wood would be given early parole on September 13, 1905. He was 23 and had served half of his sentence. Anton had a lot of supporters, but the media was less than kind. A Silverton Standard editorial said, quote, Wood is a degenerate of the worst type, and if at liberty would be a constant menace to any community in which he resided, unquote. The main condition of Anton's parole was that he work at a book printing company in New York. The warden of the prison at the time escorted him there. Anton started a new life in New York. He changed his name to Charles Henry Howard. Anton, or Charles, did not like the atmosphere of his place of employment. He asked Warden Will Clayorn if he could instead work with and for the founder of the Salvation Army, Mrs. Ballington Booth. The warden allowed this for a one-month probationary period. Shortly after, in 1906, Anton Wood was granted a full pardon and was free to live his new life as Charles Henry Howard. He met Mabel Estelle Terry, and the couple lived in Minnesota and Wisconsin over the course of their life together. While a lot of the other details of his life have been a mystery, we do know that Anton died on March 8, 1950, from lung cancer. His grave marker bears the name of his alias. In old Max's early days, it was not immune to prisoner escapes or other issues. The most well-known of this was the prison riot of 1929. In October 1929, inmate Danny Daniels and four accomplices started a riot that would take over the entire facility. Daniels and his men disarmed a number of guards and held them captive. Once the guards were restrained, other inmates began to set fire to the buildings on the prison's grounds. Daniels ended up killing the guards when his demands to be set free were refused. The National Guard and the warden at the time, William Crawford, used tear gas to enter the cell house. Daniels panicked and instead of being rearrested, killed himself and the four other men that started the attack. Eight guards and five prisoners lost their lives in the riot of 1929. The prison reflected the conflict with collapsed and burned roofs that needed immediate repair. There also was an additional riot in 1947. It resulted in the escape of 12 men who were later recaptured by authorities. A movie came out the following year called Canyon City that told the story of the riot in dramatic fashion. I will have a link to the IMDb page about this movie in case you're interested in checking it out. COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. 
I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings, or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. While Old Max has a long history of Colorado prisoners, its story pales in comparison to that of United States Administrative Maximum Facility, also called ADX. ADX is the only federal supermax prison in the United States, and it is the Mac Daddy of Colorado institutions. It is located about two hours from Denver, just outside of Florence, Colorado, and it's a short 15-minute drive from Canyon City. The first inmates were housed here in 1994. The facility is meant for inmates that pose great risk to staff and other inmates. ADX does not have a program for rehabilitation and instead is built to house the worst of the worst. Due to the notorious nature of their crimes, inmates here are confined for at least 23 hours a day. This has made the prison a center of a lot of debate regarding solitary confinement and overall prison conditions. There has never been a successful escape from ADX. This has gained it the nickname, the Alcatraz of the Rockies. So let's take a look at the list of infamous men housed at this facility. Some of ADX's most well-known residents are those of the Al-Qaeda and domestic terrorist variety. For many younger people, reference of the World Trade Center immediately results in memories of 9-11. But this was not the first time the center had been under attack. On February 26, 1993, a gas bomb in the parking garage of the North Tower exploded, injuring thousands of people and killing six. The man responsible, Ramzi Youssef, escaped and was not caught until 1995, two years later. He was placed in ADX after being sentenced to 240 years. Seven different people were found to be responsible for the attacks. All but one of those has been imprisoned. Abdul Rahman Yassin has yet to be arrested. The FBI is offering $5 million for information leading to his arrest. If you have information regarding Abdul Rahman Yassin's whereabouts, please call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI, which is 1-800-2255-324, or visit tips with an S 
www.fbi.gov. Al-Qaeda co-founder and top advisor to Osama bin Laden, Mamdo Mahmoud Salim, is serving life at ADX for the 1998 U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. He was originally serving 32 years, but during a failed prison break, he stabbed a prison guard. And guess what that gets you? Life without parole. Another Al-Qaeda member, Wadi El-Hajj, is serving time at ADX for the 1998 bombings of the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya as well. Also housed at ADX is 9-11 planner Zacharias Masawi. He's stacked with six life sentences and will die in prison at ADX. So you may not know this name, but I think you will remember the story. I remember when it broke the news, I thought this was the dumbest terrorist attack I had ever heard of. And you can thank the shoe bomber, Richard C. Reed, for all those times you had to take your shoes off at airport security. In 2001, he got on a Miami-bound American Airlines flight with explosives hidden in the soles of his shoes. The bombs did not detonate, and he was restrained by passengers on the flight. Which, by the way, go them. He is serving three life sentences plus 110 years at ADX. Dritton Duca, who was convicted of the Fort Dix attack in 2007, is also serving a life sentence at ADX. 2010 Times Square bomber Faisal Shahzad is serving a life sentence there. Josar Sinaev and his older brother Tamerlan were responsible for the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. Over 260 people were injured and three were killed in this bombing. Johar was jailed for 30 different charges. He was originally sentenced to death, but is now serving life in ADX. It was shown that the jury selection process was lacking in his original trial, and that some jurors may have already had opinions about him that would have made them less unbiased. His fate as far as life sentence or death sentence, could be up for review by the U.S. Supreme Court this year. If you don't know the name Ted Kaczynski, you most likely know him as the Unabomber. After secluding himself in a Montana cabin and writing his manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future, Kaczynski set aside trying to sabotage what he saw as an industrial technological system. He sent 16 bombs in the mail and killed three people. It was 20 years before he was caught. He is now serving eight life sentences for homicide and a litany of federal violations. Terry Nichols was a co-conspirator in the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing. He is serving 161 consecutive life sentences at ADX. He met fellow domestic terrorist Timothy McVeigh in the U.S. Army, where their hatred of the government began to feed off of one another. The pair ended up killing 168 people, including 19 children and infants, when they bombed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. While Nichols serves his sentence in ADX, McVeigh died of lethal injection in 2001 in Terre Haute. Now, it wouldn't be a good prison story without a few mob bosses mixed in there. Vincent Bassiano is serving a life sentence for his activity as the boss of the Bonanno crime family. His charges included murder. 
James Little Jimmy Marcello is serving a life sentence for crimes associated with his time as a crime boss in the Chicago Outfit Organization. His conviction included 18 murders, extortion, etc., etc., etc. Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gavano actually lived in Colorado while being in the witness protection program. He had turned state's witness against the Gambino crime family, but he didn't stay still and got put in ADX after being caught in an ecstasy trafficking ring in Arizona in 2000. He's serving 20 years. Another man who proved to not be a credible state's witness Lucchesi crime family member Anthony Gaspipe Casso was sent to ADX. He was proved to be involved in 36 gang hits. Perhaps the man at ADX with the most death on his hands is Dandenis Munoz Mosquera, who was right hand to Pablo Escobar. It also wouldn't be a jail story without a leader of a drug cartel. Joaquin Alchapo Guzman Loera is serving a life sentence plus 30 years at ADX. Alchapo's connections and access to resources allowed him to escape from two maximum security prisons in Mexico. This included a motorcycle escape through an underground tunnel from El Altiplano Jail in Mexico. This made him an obvious fit for the roped-in lifestyle of ADX. He now resides in the facility's standard 7-foot by 12-foot cell, and his only glimpse of freedom is now through a 4-inch wide window. And of course, to mix with the mob bosses, you have to have some gang leaders. Just kidding. They don't ever get to mingle. Omar Porti, otherwise known as OG Mac, is serving 50 years due to his activities as the founder of the United Blood Nation Gang. Larry Hoover got a start in Chicago gang life at 13 years old and became known as King Larry as he was the leader of the Black Gangster Disciple Nation. He was in prison for commissioning the hit of a drug dealer named William Young. This, however, was not enough to land him in ADX. Prison officials uncovered the huge range of gang leadership that he was doing from jail. He was then convicted of drug conspiracy and extortion and moved to ADX where he would not be able to continue such business dealings from behind bars. Larry Hoover was in the news again in 2018 when Kanye West pleaded that President Donald Trump release Hoover from prison as a part of the First Step Act. The First Step Act looks into unfair sentencing and overall systematic issues in the prison system. It's also aimed at helping with overcrowding in federal prisons. Hoover was not deemed to be a part of the program, as it has been found he is still trying to get coded messages to his gang members from his cell at ADX. And not all crimes are murders, or at least not directly. Former FBI agent Robert Hansen, who was with the FBI for 25 years, is serving time in ADX for releasing classified information to Russia and is classified as a Soviet spy. He gained at least $1.4 million from the dealings. In 2001, he was convicted on 14 counts of espionage and is serving 15 consecutive life sentences. In Geraldine Forsyth's reporting for 5280, William H. Webster, chairman of the Commission for the Review of FBI Security Programs, 
that title is a mouthful, said this incident was, quote, possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history, unquote. Robert Hansen isn't the only federal agent in ADX for giving information to the Russians. Harold Nicholson, a former CIA agent, is also there for espionage, but he will be released in 2024. Along with the skullcrackers and visionaries of the terrorist mob and gang world, there are, of course, a couple of straight creeps in the bunch at ADX. One of the residents is physician Michael Swango, who has now been deemed Dr. Death. His preferred method was to poison his patients and colleagues. It is thought that he may have killed up to 60 people after beginning an internship at the Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983. Evidence was only able to connect him to four homicides. He is serving a life sentence at ADX. And another very creepy and disgusting note about Swango, while he was doing OBGYN rotations while he was in school at Southern Illinois, he got caught doing fake gynecology checkups. Ugh. Ugh. Dr. Malachi York, or Dwight York, is the founder of the United Nawabian Nation. Originally boasted as a black Muslim group, the group slowly morphed into a cult that worships Egypt, hates white people, has an extreme belief in UFOs, and a fluctuating array of other bizarre beliefs. York eventually grew his power in a way that allowed him to continuously abuse children. Fourteen children testified in his trial, and York was convicted of racketeering and child molestation. He entered ADX in 2004 with a 135-year prison sentence. York has since filed a lawsuit in 2018, claiming that as an indigenous person, the U.S. government and legal system has no jurisdiction over him and he should be released from prison. Good luck with that, buddy. And you can round out the crowd at ADX with a few cultists and extremists. Eric Rudolph is a member of radical anti-abortion group Army of God. He committed a number of bombings that he claimed were attacks on global socialism and the homosexual agenda, among other insane reasons. He is most well known for his first bombing in 1996, which was the bombing of Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta in the midst of the Summer Olympic Games. This attack killed one person and injured a hundred. While authorities were trying to figure out who was responsible, he committed three other bombings, two at abortion clinics in Georgia and Alabama, and the third at an Atlanta lesbian bar. He eluded arrest for five years. Rudolph is now serving two life sentences at ADX. Tyler Bingham was moved to ADX after giving orders to kill inmates at his former prison, as well as other gang activities. He is also the founder of the Aryan Brotherhood. He's serving a life sentence at ADX. Also housed there is the current leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, Barry the Baron Mills, was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. Federal investigators later proved he was arranging hits from ADX solitary confinement. So he'll be there for a while. Another group founder, Matthew Hale, created the neo-Nazi group World Church of the Creator. His conviction is for soliciting murder. He will be released from ADX in 2037. 
And the last men on the list for the day are those you have never heard of, but totally meet the bill for an ADX resident. Michael Rudkin's story sounds like that of a prison version as the world turns. Rudkin was a prison corrections officer. He was convicted of having sex with an inmate and conspiracy with the same inmate to kill his wife. Additionally, Rudkin tried to hire someone to kill this inmate, his ex-wife, and her boyfriend, as well as a federal investigator, you know, just for good measure. He will be released from ADX in 2099. Perhaps the most dangerous criminal in ADX is one you have never, ever, 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 ever heard of. Thomas Silverston is in prison for killing two inmates and a prison guard. He has spent decades in isolation for the safety of others. The last name you may not know is Richard McNair, but he's regarded as a prison escape artist. He was originally imprisoned for murder, attempted murder, and burglary in Oklahoma. But after three different prison escapes, Richard McNair was deemed worthy of imprisonment at ADX. So you can see we've got quite the crowd that stays in a prison like this that's really meant for those people that are the biggest and baddest of the biggest and baddest. And I do have to say, I got a kick out of this. If you Google ADX, it has a four-star rating on Google Reviews. If you want to learn more about these prisons, don't worry, there's a museum for that. The Museum of Colorado Prisons is located in Canyon City, Colorado. According to their website, the museum actually shares a wall and armed towers with old Macs. The area where the museum is was originally the women's prison's cell house. During renovations in anticipation of opening the museum, the atmosphere of the building was kept intact. The exhibits there cover over 140 years of prison history. Wow, so talk about a group of bad guys. You can clearly see the type of population that ADX has and why they're so isolated from themselves, other inmates, and from the public. Okay guys, so that was a lot different than our usual stories. I plan to stick to the kind of content that you've had in the past where we kind of focus on one case or killer at a time. But if you like this informative style, let me know. I may do some additional content in future weeks like this that, you know, is not your typical Sunday content, but I might throw something in every once in a while just for you guys to get to learn a little bit more. I love researching this stuff and finding it out, and I'm kind of a history nerd, so this episode really struck a chord with me, but I definitely understand if it's not your style, so please give me feedback. I'd love to hear what you guys have to say about this particular episode. And I would love even more if you would follow or subscribe on whatever platform you enjoy your podcasts and leave a review. Connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And again, please comment with your thoughts on this episode and suggest a new one. I'm super excited because the next couple episodes we have coming up are all suggestions and I have crimes coming up I haven't heard of, and I'm only hearing of them because of you guys, so keep them coming. And of course, you can always visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials from this episode. So thank you again so much for your time, and I cannot wait to tell you another story next week on Altitude Crime.
Episode 6, Infamous Criminals Housed in Prison Valley, was written, produced, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.